Hi everyone, Francisco here. Just before we get started, I wanted to share something I'm really excited about. I recently launched the Story Powers Bootcamp, a course that teaches you everything you need to know about how to find, craft, and tell stories that work. But it's not just an online course, because you get personalized feedback from me for all the practical activities and three hours of live coaching to work through any challenges or focus on specific projects. So it's like if you bought a cookbook, but the chef came along with it. So go to storypowers.com and click on course. All the information you need will be there. So please check it out. And if you love the show and would like to support us, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash storypowers. I drink about five coffees a day, so any support would be much appreciated. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the Story Powers podcast, the show about the power of stories, the people who tell them, and why you should be doing it too. I'm your host, keynote speaker and storytelling coach, Francisco Mafus. My guest today is Hannah Jung. Hannah is a serial entrepreneur and startup advisor with expertise spanning digital marketing, app development, luxuries, hospitality, technology, and design. She has 10 years of brand strategy experience on major brands like Samsung, Clarence, and Rolex. Now, Hannah is the founder and chief connector of Reboot Experiences, which helps conscious leaders to rapidly gain clarity and confidence to charge into their next big chapter. Hannah spends a lot of her time barefoot in paradise locations like Bali, which I would normally be very jealous of. But because of the pandemic, I've been barefoot for most of the last year. So who needs Bali? Ladies and gentlemen, Hannah Jack. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Francisco. <laughs> Definitely agree with you on the barefoot all the time. No, I, now you can do whatever you want. <laughs> I, I absolutely understand the concept barefoot luxury. I went to the Maldives a few years ago, the first and last time I went to the Maldives. I'm, I'm still paying for it, I think. And the it wasn't particularly luxurious as, as holiday resorts go. But you could definitely spend the whole time you were there barefoot because the whole thing was set up for that. And uh, I've tried implementing that in my day-to-day life here in Barcelona. And I have I once left, I went swimming in the ocean in during the winter. And then I said, what if I just don't put my shoes back on? How far can I get barefoot? <laughs> and I, I actually managed to walk for a good 40-odd minutes. Uh, and I think I only put my shoes back on when I was getting into the into the underground uh, to the metro. Um, but but it was it was a bit dicey. I have to keep looking for <laughs> broken glass. I'm sure you got some interesting looks along the way. <laughs> oh, yes, but it's also true that until not that long ago, it was legal to be naked in Barcelona. So oh. so a, a few people actually took advantage of that. And if you if you Google after we're done naked man of barcelona you're gonna find a guy it's an old guy i think he's, he's bad now but it's like an older guy who made a point of walking up and down the rumblas naked and he tattooed like it looks like a black speedo that he tattooed so if you see him from the back it's like is he naked is he not and oh and when you look at the the pictures because he's naked they they blurred um they blurred his his genitalia but it's a very long blur. So you're looking at it, it was like, why is that blurred all the way to his knee? I mean, this is this is. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so yeah, he was he was fit. Gotta respect him though. Like you know, he had the rules and he was just playing to those rules and that creativity. Yeah. Gotta respect that game. But yeah, it's a shame. I never, I don't miss the fact that they changed that law and now it's not legal to walk around naked in Barcelona again. But it was funny that when they were talking about changing the law, the protest against it was, I think. 50 or 60 people got the pub, the bicing, which are the public bicycles in Barcelona, naked. And I'm thinking, oh, I mean, that's just not fair to everyone that's going to come after them and use those bicycles. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my God. That would be really funny to see that in person. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure funny is, is the... I, I, saw, I saw a little bit of it. It was just next to where my office was. Um, funny was not really the word in my head. <laughs> I think, I, you know, I'm from New York, so I see a lot of, like, strange behavior that I don't even, like, I don't even notice anymore um, after all these years. I mean, I'm not in New York now, but whenever I see, there's, like, the homeless would use, like, the bicycle racks and do, like, spinning classes, like, on the racks. They would just, like, bicycle backwards and do, like, a spin class, like, exercise, aerobics. I was like, that's really creative. So, yeah, every city has. Barcelona has, or I'm not, sure, I'm not sure if it's Spain or if it's just Barcelona, but they has they have some strange rules when it comes to to things like homeless people. So it's very, it's essentially almost impossible to move someone from a place where they're living in, regardless if the place they're living in was theirs to begin with or not. So. If you go away for a long holiday, like you, you're traveling around the world, you live in different places. If one of those places was in Barcelona and someone got into your home and lived there for a month or two, it would be very difficult to get them out. That's, that's just how the law is here. And there was there was a friend of mine and in front of his house, there was there was a garage. It was like a double door garage in a building. And, and a guy who used to be homeless set up shop there. And when we... we when my friend moved there, it was just, you know, he had some cardboard boxes and he was sleeping rough. And we thought, okay, well, probably he's not going to be there for very long. But then he started sort of building up his his house. And, and at some point he had books, he had some Bruce Lee pictures on the walls, he had he got a stereo somewhere, um, and he put plants up so he got some privacy. So. <laughs> You all you could see was just like this really nice sort of shelter with plants and art everywhere, and it was like, but isn't this the garage? Like, how do they get in here? So, so yeah, um, but don't don't make one of your your uh, seasonal homes Barcelona is what I'm saying. So anyway, I've got uh, I've got a quote that I think you're gonna like. Uh, so this is from Jerry Seinfeld, right? Okay. And he was talking about business. I think it was with Alec Baldwin. And then, and then Alec was asking him, you know, because because Seinfeld, if he wanted, he could have a, a massive business empire on the basis of his sitcom alone, um, not even counting everything else. And the reason he said that he wasn't interested is he said, "Do you want to be on a surfboard or do you want to be on a yacht?" Because I want to be on a surfboard. I want to be right on the water. That's what I like. The yacht thing, I mean, some people like to have a yacht so they can tell other people, look at my yacht. But I don't. I want to be on the surfboard. So <laughs> I, I think that I means that. a lot more to you than it means to other people. Yeah, absolutely. Or better yet, have the yacht that takes you surfing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always say, don't choose. 
Just both. <laughs> mm. Yes, true, true. But uh, I, I remember that I, I came across that, and uh, I don't remember if I came across that before I came across you. But I thought, given that you, you love surfing, and you, you worked in a yacht, and you did developed a yachting. Was it a yachting staffing app? Was that it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I know it's definitely like a weird life trajectory mm. um, to have done that like part of my life and then now I'm like working fully remote for the last seven years and you know building several businesses on the road so yeah it's quite quite a leap um mm. but then even before like yachting I was like in New York so you know I like to mix things up I sometimes just do it for the stories mm. but also just because it sounds fun but in a lot of the things that you are doing now I think feel significantly less weird than they did a year ago because remote work was a very strange thing that not many people did uh, you know a couple of years ago and now i think uh, i'll be very surprised if, surprised if the option of doing a part of your of any work remote is not something that a lot of companies are having to put up with even if they don't want to because people realize that actually 8 to 10 hours in the office having to commute every single day not my ideal life yeah. And I think people are going to start using it as like an incentive. Like, uh, you know, back in the day, like startups were like, oh, unlimited vacation. They're also going to be like optional remote work. So, yeah, I think it's definitely people are going to ask for more freedom, I think, moving forward. So, so, so one thing you might remember this from the very first time we talked, but you and I met because you appeared on Brian Miller's podcast, Brian Miller, who is mm -hmm. the only person I've had twice on my podcast. And, <laughs> and he, he reached out and he said, you know, I think you really need to speak to her. And then I looked at what you're up to and I, and I said, are you sure you didn't send her to the wrong podcaster? Because I, <laughs> almost everyone I talk to is either a speaker or, or, or a storyteller or someone who works in more directly with that type of stuff in marketing. But I believe that the reason why he thought that that you and I should talk was because, again, it, it might just be a case of semantics, but pretty much the work you do now is you are helping people rewrite their story, essentially. Exactly. That's a beautiful way to put it, Francisco. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, there's these stories that we tell ourselves that keep us stuck and keep us small. Like a lot of these like limiting beliefs and subconscious blocks stem from these stories that we keep telling ourselves. It's usually in the form of like a repeating thought, like, oh, I'm not good enough. Or, oh, I have this great idea. Oh, but then everyone else is doing it. Or like, this would be cool, but oh, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, like there's these like constant, like um, negative feedback loops that's happening in your brain. So what I do is like, yeah, you're absolutely right. I help them identify where the tape is stuck and then have them choose a different story, mm. rewrite their past story or reframe their past story in order to move forward with a little bit more clarity. So before we jump into, into the work you're doing at, at with Reboot Experiences, I heard you talk about some things that had more to do with you and how you've done that for you. And if I understand correctly, one of the most important things, one of the most important processes you had to go through was learning how to let go of the stories you were carrying from your family, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, as a Asian American, a child of immigrants, and you know, very timely with what's happening in the world right now, 
I realized that there's two different stories that I had to let go of. One being the stories that I inherited from my parents about uh, success, about um, how to conduct myself in the world, about money, about all of the different aspects um, that uh, immigrant parents who had given up everything to allow myself and my brothers to succeed, like they had very high expectations. So on the one hand, there's that personal story that I had to carry and learn to um, release. And then on the other hand, there's another story, um, which is this model minority, you got to do what's expected of you from being, I was born in the US, but, you know, even now, like systemic racism exists, and people look at me, they're like, Oh, like your English is so good. Like, where did where are you from? I'm like, I'm from Texas, like, you know, and like dealing with that, and how to work in a very like, I, you know, in my previous life, I worked in tech and marketing and yachting is also very male dominated as well. So I found myself continuously in situations, very male dominated, also very white, you know, growing up in Texas, as you can imagine, is very white. Um, so I've also had to learn to let go of the stories of people's expectations of me. I didn't choose the normal <laughs> career trajectory and also to dive deeper into spirituality and a little bit more like choosing my own path is very different even among the Asian American community. So when people meet me, they're like, how the hell did you do it? It's just, it's to be intentional about how I remove those two stories. One question that, that comes to my mind when, when you talk about that type of stuff is, at what point did, uh, so I don't know if you, if you even use this type of language when you think about this stuff, right? So the, the whole, the language, the stories we tell ourselves, but whatever you call it, was there a point where something happened where you thought, okay, well, this stuff I've been carrying, I have to drop it? Was there any point, any sort of turning point or any anything that happened that made you realize that, that this was happening and this was dragging you down? Yeah, I think it happened at different, that aha moment happened at different times for the two different stories. So with the family stories that I was carrying, it... It happened kind of gradually over time, but then the big, big moment for me was um, losing my uncle um, to cancer when I was quite young. And I realized, and, and losing several, like my, I used to ice skate as well, and my skating partner like committed suicide at a very young age as well. So I experienced a lot of loss at such a young age that the the takeaway that I got from that was like, you know what, like life actually is short. It doesn't matter if you're old. It doesn't matter if you're young. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter anything. Like you really do have to live fully and like take, like participate actively in your life. Because up to that point, I was just kind of like going with whatever my parents suggested because I was so sheltered. I was so like in my bubble that I didn't know any better. And that was sort of the wake up moment for me. So on a personal level, it happened much sooner. And then gradually over time, like I learned to identify what I wanted to do over a decade. And then with the second story of like, what's my role in society as an Asian American child of immigrants and carrying that weight in a, in a, in a primarily like, you know, cisgendered male white industry and environment, um, that actually happened much later in life. It didn't happen until I 
started working on a yacht and, you know, this is after my corporate career. And I was like, oh, I want to like start a company. And when I was looking to raise funds, so much of the funding goes to people that look like the VC leaders. And um, I realized like, you know what, like a lot of people think that there's only one way to start a company and it's through funding and whatever. And I realized that like, again, like we have to come to our own aid sometimes. And I made the decision to save up my own money and raise my own capital. And I was able to start with um, only like 10 grand um, and was able to scale it successfully. And that kind of really taught me that, you know, this story that you need to do things a certain way or, oh, because of my race or like my gender, like things are not possible for me. Like that story I started to let go of mm. because I thought, oh, I'm, I need funding and whatever, but it's really simply just not true. It's a sad state of affairs how a lot of the stories, like the one you just mentioned, particularly about being um, Asian American, how common they are. I mean, I, I've just I've just coached someone uh, for a TEDx and she is uh, Austra Asian Australian, and it sounds like the exact same story. So you know, she went to school, and everybody asks, "Oh, where are you from?" I was like, "I'm from here." <laughs> and then they were they had the the advanced English class, which was for the Australians, and they had sort of the the you know whatever they called it, the normal English class. And she got put in the normal English class, and she's like, "But it's my first language. This is what I speak every day." And then she became she was she didn't go into startups, but she became a lawyer. And she said that what will usually happen is if you know she goes into a boardroom and everybody looks at her, at her a bit funny, like, "So is this the junior lawyer? Do you, do you have like the white guy coming at some point?" Um, and it, apparently oh once God, they yes. actually said, like someone actually said to her, it's like, she, she gave the, the legal opinion and they said, and, and they were looking at her funny and, and they said, do you guys have any, do you have any questions about the, about the presentation? I said, no, it's just, we not usually see lawyers like you. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know deeply what that feels like, but with that said, um, I've somehow found a way to use that to my advantage. And what I mean by that is because people expect not less of you, but they, they don't expect it, I guess. I've used that as almost a tool to move forward and then like launch or like achieve success much quicker because I, I receive less friction because they're like, oh, like, She's not like, I can't take her seriously or like whatever the hell it is. Like, I don't really care. I'll just go forward. Um, so yeah, there's duality to like every challenge. I think like, yes, of course, like it, it creates a bit of challenge, but then when you set the ego aside and the personal like attack in front aside, there's always an opportunity. And for me, that opportunity was like, I can do whatever I want and people won't really notice or people won't really say otherwise. And I will, I know that I'll end up surprising them. So that to me is actually more fun. Um, and I choose to choose, like view that challenge through the lens of like, this is a game and this is fun rather than like, oh, like they're not expecting this of me. It's not like, oh, I require them to look at me a certain way. Like I think I've kind of moved past that. So yeah, like that's how I am approaching it. 
One thing that a lot of people don't necessarily realize, but but you've lived through it and, and, and I've lived through it to a smaller extent, is that the the stories we tell ourselves have an immense power to affect how we physically feel, not just how we emotionally feel, because there's this book that I read many years ago, and I don't think I'll ever forget the book. It's called Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers. And the, the theory of the book is very basic. And, and it's this was actually revolutionary when it came out, which is simply that stress is not a mental thing. You know, your body, our bodies have evolved to deal with stress as a short-term occurrence. And anything that causes stress to become a, a medium or long-term phenomenon in your body is messing up the balance of everything. It's putting all, all sorts of hormones into the, the system that are not meant to be there for that long and and that can have real life consequences so i mean is it in your case you got yourself some ulcers didn't you uh yes absolutely and um there's another book called like the body always keeps score um which is also about how we internalize stress and yeah i experienced exactly what you said firsthand about um allowing the stories and the micro traumas and all the stress build up in my body even though mentally i was like i think i'm fine but on a subconscious level my body was like you are not fine i think it was a, a way of coping with the story and telling myself like it's fine when it really wasn't um was just a way to adapt and cope with a very stressful situation in my life and that for me was the moment that i was like okay like that was wake up call number two was like, okay, like I really do need to drive this ship. I kind of fell asleep at the wheel and I need to wake up and like choose something different. And that's why I ended up on a, a left corporate in New York and ended up on a yacht um, because it was, yeah, that new story that I wanted to start creating for myself. I So what I suffered with that was, it was nowhere near as serious because you, you ended up being hospitalized more than once, right? So, so mine didn't get to that point. But when I was much younger, so in the Brazil, which is where I'm from, you have something like, it's not quite like the SATs because in Brazil, when I was there, you had to choose the career you want to do and then you apply for the specific university you want to, to go to and then there's a big test and you need to reach a certain score. And as you can imagine, that is sort of nerve-wracking because you can only do that for the for the public universities, which are the ones that everybody wants to go to, once a year. So if you don't pass, then it's a big problem. And I, throughout the process of studying for it, I started having abdominal pains and couldn't quite figure out what it was. And then I think I spent three or four months taking every single exam known to man, and they couldn't find absolutely anything. And then, lo and behold, I passed the thing, I got into university, and it slowly faded away. And then I realized, okay, fine, so this is psychosomatic. This is what I, I ter term them my ghost pains. And then every so often since, if there's some, so there's a lot of stress going on in my life, the same spot starts hurting. And then my wife will look at me and go, the ghost pains? It's like, yeah. And, and the, the weird thing, or, or I don't know if this is good or bad, but... I don't always realize that I'm that stressed until they turn up. I mean, it's been quite a while since it happened, but I don't always realize that, oh, I'm going through a lot of stress and maybe I should back off a bit. But then but then I go, oh, actually, I'm not feeling very, this is not comfortable. So what is going on? Uh, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm more worried about this thing than I thought I was. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into the stuff you're doing because... 
Because this, I think, is very difficult, right? Because the work you're doing, if we're sticking with the story metaphor, is you're helping people identify the stories that are limiting and change them. How do you do... I guess that people are coming to you, so it's not like you have to go out and sell this concept to them, but how much resistance do you get when you're trying to help them figure that out? Um, not much resistance um, because the way that I approach it is through asking a lot of questions and specific questions. Um, it requires me to deeply and compassionately listen to their answers and ask the right questions. But generally, it's a process of peeling back the layer of like, but why, but why, but why? And sometimes um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with design thinking and using the five times why to really get to the root of a problem. So, yes, I, I, I call it my daughter's, my daughter's approach. <laughs> the daughter method. Yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it really kind of drills down into um, what's the story that you're telling yourself. And I I always try to say, like, why Why do you think that is? And then I, I ask the deeper, I ask the same question, kind of going a deeper, deeper level. And usually the first three answers are kind of the more surface level bullshit answers. And then the fourth and the fifth are the more true answers. And then my methodology is um, these stories served a purpose. So it's not about like shoving it away that's quite violent. You know, it's it's not about saying like, those stories are wrong and they're horrible. You have to cut it out of your life. It's not like that. It's like, okay, like it's kind of like Marie Kondo. You have to like look at it, say thank you for your service and then release it. So it's the same way. Like you look at where did this belief in the story come from? What role did it play? Usually it's boils down to self-preservation or love or connection. And it makes sense. And it protected them for a long time, but it reaches a certain point and they know it. The reason why they come to me is when they're like, oh, it doesn't feel right. Like this is affecting my job, my life, my relationships, my happiness, all of these things. And um, they're able to identify like, oh, like it did serve a purpose and I do have to say thank you to it. And I was like, yes, but then let's now identify why it's not working for you. So to get them to that self-acceptance that it did serve a purpose and get them to say, yes, I am ready to let it go because I can't force them to let go of a story. Mm. So it's really about having them come to that realization. Yeah, because the, the reason I'm, I'm saying that this could be complicated or it could be difficult and asking about resistance is because just yesterday or the day before, I might have misspoke on social media. And and it, it was sort of baffling to me that anyone thought that was the case. But it, it was a super simple situation where someone was being someone was being trolled uh, on social media because the, the the person who's my friend, she swears, you know, she swears on her posts. And then someone went and wrote this horrendous thing that was very long, whatever, just saying, oh, you're a horrible person, whatever. And uh, my comment to her was something like, because because the woman had made some like grammatical errors and was comment commenting on her English and like surely you can't have that good at English if you're swearing that type of thing, and she had some ideas that from like the 1950s about like being a lady is what she she clearly aspired to be. And I said, you know, why why would you possibly care about someone who says um, manners uh, manners is good? And has this opinion, the opinions that sound like, you know, some sort of Downton Abbey hole that she crawled out from. 
And, and, and that's why we're just kind of mostly trying to be amusing and say, like, she's a moron. Like, why would you bother? Why would you care? And then someone kicked back, uh, not her, someone else said essentially that I was telling her how to feel or that I was trying to sort of invalidating her experience. And, and, and my answer was, well, no, I don't think I'm, but that's not what I was trying to do. Uh, because I think that sometimes people have, you know, the story they're telling themselves about why this matters is not very helpful. And what I was trying to do, uh, perhaps not as tactfully as I could have, is to say, well, you know, you seem bothered by this, but this person clearly is a moron. So that there's no reason to be bothered by this. But then that got me thinking, because I know that with children, you don't do that. Like my daughter falls down and hurts herself. The worst thing I can say is, oh, they, they get up, it's nothing. Like that, that I definitely know I cannot do. But you're talking to grown-ups or supposed grown-ups, and it's clear that what's causing them pain is the story they're telling themselves, is the way they're framing a situation. Is there any way to, <laughs> to sort of help them realize that that might be the case if they haven't gotten to that realization by themselves? That's a great question, Francisco. And when it comes to people's stories and beliefs, um, they have to be willing to do the like make the change themselves, just like how you can't force anyone. Like I can't force you to do something you don't deeply believe in. Same goes for them. It's like there has to be their choice. So there's nothing that um, any external pressure can push them that will have long-term changes. They might, you might get them to agree in the short term, but the long term will always default to their layer of their belief system and their values. And I, this might be an unpopular opinion, but I actually don't believe that there's right truth or wrong truth. I think truth is actually just semantics and a matter of perspective because how you grew up gave you a certain set of beliefs and values and how she probably grew up gave her a different set of values and beliefs. And we might be looking at the same mountain, but you're coming up from one side that's you're like, the mountain's all rocky. And she's like, no, I came up from this outside and everything's smooth. And you're fighting over things based on perspective, but it's the same mountain. So that's why I don't really like to engage in whose perspective is right or whose perspective is wrong, because I just know that they are just simply speaking from their truth or their perspective at that time. That's not to say that it's not going to shift or change. Like as they grow, as experiences happen to them, they learn, they're able to progress. Maybe they move over to the side a little bit and can start to see your perspective more, or maybe you can move to the side and start to see what they're seeing more. So I think it's just a balance of understanding there is no, like, you're on the same mountain. There's no right or wrong perspective. It's just your perspective at the time. And like having that compassion for yourself and for the other person is actually a skill that I feel like in the day of like trigger uh, culture where everything, everyone is triggered by everything and they fight and um, their natural inclinations do rise to anger. We need more compassion and just one second longer to be like, in their moment, their perspective to them feels correct. Just as you swear, your perspective is also correct. So that, you know, that's something just to kind of keep in mind. And I understand like there's some people who will resist change, but that's their prerogative. Just as how if 
I made you do something different that you don't want to do, you're like, no, I will never do that. So. Yeah, it, it, my example is perhaps not even the best one because the best example would be when you are, in a sense, trying to ha help someone in your mind, but they don't want to be helped or they don't see it the same way. This because I think my friend was absolutely fine. The person that had a massive issue was someone else who thought, you know, and then you start getting into gender discussions and is then automatically assume, or at least she seemed to assume, that because I'm a man and I'm talking to a woman that has to do with why I'm telling her how to feel or whatever. It's like, no, I'll say the exact same thing to my friends, my male friends. I would say, mate, what are you doing? He's a moron. Why, why are you bothered about this? But I, I do worry about that because although I'm not necessarily agree that there is no truth. I think when it comes to feelings, every time it's all subjective. I think there is objective truth. But my concern is when it comes to the fact that someone is suffering, I don't think is usually deniable or, or subjective. I think it's clear someone is suffering. And I, as a parent, I worry about this. And, and as a husband, I've worried as well. You know, my, you know my, my wife is torturing herself over something and I can't fix the thing that's causing it, but I can help her see it in a different way. And if I do that, the problem goes away. But at what point, if the person hasn't, hasn't come to you and say, I think the way I'm, you know, this is this is holding me back. Can you help me reframe it? Are we ever okay to try and make that happen if they haven't clearly asked for it? And I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the answer to that is no. Like, they're never going to be willing to truly listen if they didn't give you explicit permission, which is like kind of the benefit of my work. I'm not going out there. I'm not preaching. Like, I just like my approach is like, I'm just going to share what I know. And if you want to learn more of like how I can specifically help you, you are doing the work. You are giving me permission to help you. Um, there's this like, like phrase that's a, one of my friends who's a coach was like, don't coach without permission. And that's so true because then it becomes more about me, like trying to be a savior or whatever. And I, I don't really believe in the savior mentality because I think everyone's an adult and like a human being capable of making their own decisions. So unless they ask me for help, I'm not going to give my advice. Um, I will always ask questions to kind of clarify, help them clarify, but I'm not going to coach them or like give them like a solution. I know that's like instinctually for me, when I look at my past, like I'm very much like an engineering brain. I was like, there's a problem, there's a solution, there's a problem solution. But then what the missing piece was, are am I solving a a problem, quote unquote problem that they never asked you to solve. So that's the key differentiation is like sometimes 90% of the time people, when they're saying to you, like, this is what's going on, they just want to be heard. And when it comes to my coaching clients, they, they ask explicitly to help me with this. Usually when it's a friend or a family member, just venting, I, I have to catch myself to not coach with that permission and just allow them to to just ask questions and, and just to be heard. Yeah, I think that's amazing advice where where I think that advice becomes complicated to follow is when it comes to parenting. Yes, like with the issue of parenting, I can't really speak for parents because I am not one. <laughs> um, but uh, probably that, yeah. that probably just means you have more clarity than we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows? I might think very differently when I have mm. children of my own and um, all of this advice will go out the window. Yeah. But that will be a new perspective when I get there. But for now, this is my perspective. <laughs> yeah, I, I think one trap that a lot of parents fall into, and I'm, I'm trying to crawl out of it, is that 
we genuinely think that we can we can influence who our children are we can't we can make it easier or harder for them to become who they are we can definitely influence things like manners and we can instill some good habits and things like that but you know you're not going to make a shy child become an extrovert you're not going to you know make a non-musical child become musical but when it comes to things like like for example i just, this is the silliest example but i think it's relevant because you know she was suffering for it some kid in her class told her she was slow and it wasn't the first time she was told that she was slow and i don't know she prides herself in being really fast and she loves running around and she was really bothered by this and i'm like okay well this is clearly a silly thing to be upset about i understand why she's upset what tools can i give a four and a half year old to maybe make her slightly and i said well you are slower than me but you're a lot faster than your mom and she's like, eh, yeah, but <laughs> so you're just trying to find something you can give them. Um, and and it's and with grown-ups, I, and I get, I, you know, I get the whole coaching without permission, but it is difficult, I think, at times to see friends or family when they have been suffering for this because of the same story for a very long time. And you know that like if there was any way that they could just see it from a different angle, that all that pain. Can can either go away or at least become a lot a lot less of an issue. But you're right. I, mean, I don't know if there is a way to not force it on people, but to to be more sort of outbound with that, other than than inbound. So I actually I have an example, a terrible example of the whole coaching without permission thing in in the type of thing you do. There was this person I've spoken to on LinkedIn a couple of times, and we always seem to get a get sort of aggressive with each other and get into an argument or whatever and and he's a life coach and it's the, so the last time we spoke it was something like i don't know i i think i i offered some some help with content because i thought his content which is could be fantastic was was not that great it's like listen i have some ideas if you want to listen to them let me know and then he started just telling me a whole bunch of stuff about my life. And he's like, you know, are you doing this? Are you doing that? I'm like, I'm not sure I want to get into this conversation. And then very quickly devolved into him basically telling me off if I haven't, you know, if I'm not doing what I'm meant to be doing and this, this is not supporting my family and blah, blah, then I'm not living my life to the fullest. Or whatever. And he's just like, that coming to, from someone when you haven't asked is just horrendous. <laughs> There's no way that that would ever work. <laughs> to guilt someone exactly. into changing their life. Uh, to, exactly. Uh, yeah. Because I think from his perspective, he probably made some assumptions through his lens and he was like, oh, he's suffering. Yeah. But that might not be the case for you. Just as when you observe people who you're like, oh, I can clearly see from my angle they're suffering, but they may not see it. And also, I always ask, what are they gaining? from staying stuck because they always gain something if it wasn't beneficial to them in some way they wouldn't still remain that way it would be like you know when you hit rock bottom you're like holy hell i need to get myself out of here but if you don't make that realization that means you're still benefiting in some sick way you're still benefiting right you can still play the victim role and maybe they like that because it brings them 
connections, or maybe they act like they are incapable. And so it never pushes them. They don't have to actually try hard or, you know, they tell themselves they can never do what you do and that they can stay small because they're happy, they're comfortable, but they're afraid to admit it or whatever. So you just always have to assume that they are in the position that they actually want to be in unless they expressly ask for it. Because think about it. Most people, if they're in a situation they don't want to be in, they either get themselves out or look for people to help them get out. Very rarely are you Or they stuck. moan a lot. They, yeah, but that's what I mean. It's like if they want to moan a lot, but don't you've noticed there's some people who just like to complain, but don't yeah, have any they're, they're called the British. <laughs> Oh my god, that's so funny. Um, yeah, the, the whinging palms is like the saying. Yes. Um, yes. But I think what you're what you're missing in that analysis is that he saw right through me, and I was being hypocritical and not willing to live my life to the fullest. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, we get a lot of this on social media. Like people that will ask you questions, like so, so how's the year going? How's the business? And then what challenges are you facing? And they're trying to getting getting you into some sort of coaching conversation. That as soon as you give them any any rope, then they try to hang you with it and go, oh well, if uh... so, yeah, not I, I fully I fully agree that the coaching without permission is is very good a very good idea. So on more specifically on how you do that because there's the questioning process so you're trying to find what's limiting people i would expect that a lot of those sessions get somewhat emotional and get somewhat you know childhood traumas and things of that nature coming out but once once you've done that so once it's come out once you've sort of been able to identify okay well maybe this is why i'm doing this thing or i'm thinking this thing what comes next? So how do you go from, okay, I know what the problem is to actually trying to move away from that story into a better one? Yeah, that's a good question. So I have different exercises to sort of fortify it. It's almost like when you have an infection, that's like the, the negative story that's harming you. You Instead of like putting more Band-Aids on it, you have to kind of cut it open and let it breathe. And then we learn to stitch it and heal it. So how that process works is like the initial like cutting is going to feel quite painful and you're going to let a lot of the anger, the sadness, these emotions out. And then we go about the process using our intuition, using our mind, like logic, you know, that's something that most people feel comfortable with, but then it's also important to understand how it affects like your spirit and like what you actually, what brings you that like childhood joy. Um, and what I do is I have them look at like, okay, like what values do you have currently because the values that you had in the past when you first created that story might be very different and so how can we use that as a tool to then choose a new story that's actually aligned with the values that you live day in and day out today and then another way that i approach it is like okay let's go deeper into looking at that childhood moment because this is a pattern i do believe in patterns and cycles so it's like if you feel this way now chances are very high that you have felt this way in the past let's look at your pattern your growth pattern where have you been stuck in the past and how did you move forward successfully in the past cycle um another way that i like teach people is like hey like let's look at replacing it so if you take something away like you have to replace it but what do you replace it with? What's that new story? So the new story is rooted in your values and also rooted in the things that you actually do want for yourself, not the things that you don't want for yourself. They're like, oh, I don't want something that, uh, you know, 
like, I don't want to feel stressed. I was like, don't talk about what you don't want. Talk about what you do want. They're like, okay, I want more calm. I want more peace. I want whatever. And it's like really getting them to emotionally connect to a future that they do want and then making the backwards logical steps to get them there rather than thinking with only your brain and saying like, I want to do this. I want to accomplish this because that is like a symptom of the underlying cause, which is they're hoping that it brings them like the happiness, the calm, the joy, the whatever. So it's important that you actually identify the underlying cause that you want for yourself on an emotional level. Then your subconscious brain can work to do, to push you towards that path. And I help organize and like say, okay, so like, what's the first step? What's the middle step? What's that goal plan look like on a practical level based on that emotional state you're trying to get to? So it's about pulling out some of that negative story, replacing it, saying, thank you for your service, moving it aside, and then identifying clearly, okay, this is what I want. This is how I want to feel. And these are the steps that I am willing to take that I want to take because it feels fun. There's a healthy amount of fear. I'm excited about it and I'm intellectually stimulated by it because I think there are five key things that you need to move forward and replace your story. Any, any new path forward, I call it like the grief model. G is like, is there an opportunity for growth? Because as human beings, we always like to up level and learn and grow. And R, do you have the resources? Like whether it's money, time, even the energy, you know, to do this new path. I is intellectual. Are you interested in it? Are you intellectually stimulated? Is your mind excited about this? E is for emotion and excitement. Like you have to feel it in your body. Like, eek, like I can't wait to do this. It's like when you're a kid and you play with a new toy, you're like, wake up first thing in the morning. Cause you're like, you want to play with that new toy. And then the final thing is F because I think healthy amount of fear is important because if without that, you're bored. So that's the methodology that I use to help people identify that new story. Because the way you the way you do this is usually through retreats, right? I'm sure you call them retreats, but... Yeah, so I call them virtual retreats. Um, so I used to do them in person, yes. but their in-person experiences are very different. So Reboot as a whole has the mission of connection, connection in three key areas, like to yourself, your greater mission and other people. So think of like the in-person experiences, like 70% of it is about like connecting with other people and like they're experiencing things and it's really fun. And then 30% of it is like connecting to yourself and your mission. So the virtual programs are the opposite where majority of the group sessions are about connecting much deeper into who you are and yourself. And then about 30% is it, of it is like connecting with others. So it's kind of like the focus is slightly different, but the overarching mission is the same. So yeah, I do do it in like group settings. The reason I was asking about that is because one question I had is how sticky that process is because, because a lot of the things you're talking about to a great extent are therapy, right? We can call it whatever we want. We can spin it as storytelling, but to a great extent, it's it's arguably more therapy than than coaching and 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 so this was the question because i i didn't get the feeling from what i found out about your work that you are talking to these people once a week for the rest of their lives so you know how how easy or not it is to it is to relapse into some of those old stories without some sort of some sort of continuous follow-up or continuous reinforcement yeah that's a great question um how I set it up is 
I initially like set the um, intention and the tone that I am not going to be their only teacher because then that creates a weird dynamic where they rely on me. And I don't think that type of relationship is healthy for their long-term growth. It's not about like, oh, listen to me. I'm the only one with the answers. That's why I love working in groups so that they connect with these other amazing human beings in the same cohort who are going through the same things, who are willing to listen and they help each other out. So during the program, yes, like I'm guiding them through the process, but I'm certainly not the only teacher. And in fact, by the end, I do like an integration session with each of them and I assign them with permission, of course, because um, I, I kind of like watch how people interact and I can usually tell like who has chemistry to support each other, either similar minded or complementary. And so I connect those two and I'm like, you have your accountability partner. And as an experiment for the next year, I want you to check in with each other at minimum once a month. And they're like, sweet. So then they have one other person who understands their story, who understands their challenges to bounce ideas off of and connect with, even without me being involved. So I think it's really important to give them the tools that they can implement on their own. And that's why like all of my like coaching, like I call them exercises because it's meant to be practiced. They can access them whenever they want. And whenever they're having a moment of like, I'm really challenged by this. I'm like, hey, remember that module on fear? Like, go revisit that. Or like, hey, I, I'm making a hard decision. I was like, oh, remember that decision-making matrix? Like, go visit that, you know? So it's like they have all the tools and they do continuously come back. And um, even after like three years, uh, someone's now on their second business. She's like, hey, I dusted off the old exercises now. And like, it's it's still very helpful. So it's nice to know that it's always a tool to use. I have a feeling that once we're out of the, the madness that we're living through with the pandemic and all, and the, and the physical retreats and the physical experiences become a thing again, uh, a lot of these people are going to go, oh, I, I think I need to reboot again. I think, where, where, is, where is it this year? Are you doing it in Bali again? I, I think I really need a, few, a couple of weeks there again. I mean, the, the exercise is not cutting it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to have both because you want that connection. You know, you want to have fun. I, I believe in being more joyful with this process of un understanding yourself because I think so much of the coaching industry, and I guess therapy, I mean, I'm not a therapist, I just think I've been through a lot of shit in my life that makes me like, think of a certain way. But I think a lot of people, sorry, I just like lost my train of thought there. Um, a lot of people like yeah. retreats in <laughs> paradise locations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people are attracted to that because they're like, Oh, it's so fun. And you know, like, it, why not? It's like a vacation. And the reason why I think that is actually a good thing is because a lot of the coaching industry is very serious and very heavy. And so is therapy. And I think it's missing a key part of human existence, which is joy, play, fun. And, you know, in-person experiences allow for that. I mean, I've been experimenting with some virtual sessions as well to be more joyful and silly and fun. Like we do like virtual like movement and dance and like drawing parties and all of these things to keep more of that playful energy. But it's much easier, if I'm being honest, much easier in person to be like basically like running around like kids, like playing hide and seek, you know, and that joyfulness is also important to human growth. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that I haven't developed this thought particularly well, but but what you are doing, I think a lot of people would consider sort of the 
what you're doing personally is sort of the cliche of I'm going to go find myself. I'm going to live in different parts of the world. There's going to always going to be a beach. It's never going to be the, you know, the, well, it could be the Tibet, but normally it's a warm place. And, and I think that to some people that there, I can imagine that could be the risk that some people are attracted by the concept of what they're going to this super beautiful place to do, but a part of them is thinking, well, I'm going to paradise either. So, so I'm spending a week there and there'll be some exercises, there'll be some stuff. And I think that what we're going through now forces the focus back on what the actual work is. The only real question, which I'm sure you have a better answer um, in a year or two, is does the real work, is it more effective if you have to force it, you know, if it's virtual, right? So if it's not, you don't get all the, the community and all the other things you would get more easily in person, does it make the, the real work you're trying to do more effective or less? And I, and I, I think it might just be different for some people, where some people will we, we need that to get into that headspace to do it. And some people are like, well, if I'm there, I'm enjoying the beach and everything out. I'm putting up with this stuff. So Yeah, well... It's funny that you say that because uh, during the pandemic, like a lot of people, um, we went virtual. But it's so funny because I've actually had the idea to to do a virtual cohort like this for years. But, you know, obviously planning like four or five retreats a year, it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy. So I never had the moment. So when the COVID hit, I was like, okay, well, now is a t better, good a time as any. And what I found was it is actually more effective working across 10 weeks, like a much longer period of time to develop slowly these deeper relationships with the members of the cohort to unpack things. Because I think there is a, a little bit of an integration time where if you learn something new, you kind of have to think about it on your own, practice it on your own, let it sink in before you rush off to the next exercise, right? Yep. So there's much more of a step-by-step -step approach that feels much more solid so I've noticed a much more long-term benefit. So the people who've gone through the cohort now, like coming up on over a year now, I'm now on my eighth cycle. And um, the people at the very start and where they are now, from the very first cohort to where they are now is completely different in such an amazing way. Like many started their own businesses, many like up-leveled in their own unique way, moved countries, whatever. But that's cool to watch versus like the in-person experiences are only like a week, you know, and there's only so much you can do given like there's also things to do. There's a lot of distractions and it's really fun and it's joyful. So I think moving forward, how I'm going to leverage the power of in-person connection and joy with the impact of these longer term more intentional programs virtually is to have the virtual experience first because like it has to start with you give that space to explore yourself first and then what naturally happens is by the end they're like i can't wait to meet all of you guys in person and then we do like a retreat yeah, so I, I think that i think the, the, the british will call that you know you know you do the work and then you get a piss up after the work yeah <laughs> exactly. celebrate the work by getting exactly. by getting by getting a bit rowdy with everyone else exactly. uh, listen exactly. i think um i think uh, the surf is just about up where you are and <laughs> and the time time to go get my kid from school the kid i should try not to indoctrinate too much with my own ideas is also coming up <laughs> So um, if, if people want to find out more about the work you're doing, what's the best place to do that? 
definitely Instagram. Um, if they want to check out uh, Reboot Experiences or The Hannah Jung is my personal. Um, it's H-A-N-A-J-U-N-G, The Hannah Jung. Um, and I post, I do a lot of like um, little mini workshops on there and I share a lot of helpful content. It's just really meant to nourish your growth. So that's the best way to reach me. And obviously the website, rebootexperiences.com. Perfect. I'll put all that on the show notes and uh, I'll, I'll be glad to tell Brian that he was right to, <laughs> to annoy us <laughs> to, to do this. Uh, so, so again, thank you very much for your time today, Hannah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Francisco. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Take care of yourselves. And until next time. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, I'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. It's very easy. You open the app and find this show. Then scroll down a little. And when you see the stars, tap. I'd really appreciate it. And it does help other people find us. And if you'd like to get in touch or find out more about what I do, reach out to me on LinkedIn or visit my website, storypowers.com.